Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. I'm Jason Fox, and this series is all about adventure, resilience, and inspirational humans. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and is supported by Talisker Single Malt Whiskey. My guest today is Mark Ormod. Mark's a former Royal Marine Commando who was badly injured by an IED in Afghanistan and became a triple amputee as a result. But since then, he has become an author, a motivational speaker, peak performance coach, a charity fundraiser, an all-round hero, basically. Now, obviously, we're still in lockdown, so this episode was recorded remotely, so forgive any little glitches. But I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Once again, we're also going to be answering some questions that you've asked me on Instagram. I'm going to be sending a bottle of my favourite Talisker to the top question I pick out. Here we go. Mark, welcome. I mean, it's amazing to have you on. The man, the myth, the utter legend. Uh, we've known each other for a few years now, we, and predominantly, we only ever catch up at social gatherings and, and like schmoozing events, which are now pretty much fallen off the radar. Mate, thanks for coming on. Oh, mate, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem, not a problem. Obviously, we're recording this in the midst of a lockdown. We're probably, what are we now, seven weeks in? I think I'm about nine because I had a, a oh, slight injury before lockdown. So I was housebound a little bit before the official statement. So it's all gone <laughs> a bit of a blur, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, mate, I mean, mate, how have you been? How have you found it so far? Honestly, not that bad. Um, mm. You know, it's just the, the hardest thing for me through this whole lockdown. I've got two of my three kids at home with me now, the six and the eight year old. Trying yeah. to homeschool them, you know, and like yeah. every day is is a battle <laughs> at the minute. You know, six seven weeks into doing it, just trying yeah. to get them to sit still and concentrate and and teach them. But it hasn't been that bad, if I'm honest. No, I mean, I think there's certain things from our background that that go in favour of us in these sort of situations. However. One of a few people I've spoken to said probably the hardest thing is that homeschooling because essentially parents aren't taught to be teachers, right? And I think it's difficult when, I mean, that's why kids go to school because they go to an, they go into an environment where they know what they need to do. They need to switch on and learn. Whereas at home, it's a place normally where they run around and cause their parents a immeasurable grief <laughs> yeah and, <laughs> and, so, and there's so many distractions mate you know we've got uh, yeah. an xbox here that the boys got a little nintendo they've got the the internet you know and it's just yeah i, I get i feel for them you know because it is yeah. hard for them to sit there when they know they've got the cartoons on the telly in the front room and trying to do you know their times tables and spellings it, it must be pretty difficult so that's probably mm. the hardest thing so far 
Yeah, but I would agree. Although I'm I'm lucky with regard to all that all that sort of stuff. But mate, mentally, where where are you at during lockdown? I'm all right, mate. Um, you know, I'm keeping myself busy. I've, I've been furloughed from work um, until the end yeah. of May. Uh, my wife's still working, so we're still doing the homeschooling. I'm, I'm trying to help her with that. Um, I'm reading. You know, just yeah. just trying to stay physically and mentally active. Um, yeah. You know, not just get into a into a rut or a slump. And uh, mm. I think that's the danger. I think it's it, it's quite dangerous if you get into that a rut or a slump. Then mentally, things can take a bit of a turn. So I've been proactive with it, and I'm just trying to keep on top of it constantly. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to um, spoke to Ollie on the on the one before you, and uh, again, it was about having that sort of um, the routine and, and and having the discipline to stick to at least some form of routine, no matter how loose. That that's been the biggest thing for me uh, is is mm. routine. You know, I, I still get up at half past five in the morning, like I would do regularly, uh, to yeah. start my day off, and I start it off in a specific way. Uh, which gets me primed and set up for the day, which then means I can jump into that homeschooling at half past eight, full of energy, ready to go, you know, knock that out of the park. We, we've got a cut off time for that, usually about lunchtime. Then we have yeah. the afternoon routine with a bit of fizz, a bit of downtime, a bit of family mm. time. So yeah, that's, that's 100% been the key for me is, is being disciplined in that routine and sticking to it. Yeah, I, I'd agree good um 100 percent but mate so i had a bit of a i didn't know how to start this off properly because part of me wanted to introduce you and give a rundown of your bio Mm -hmm. because there's there's definitely people out there that will obviously know you but there's i'm thinking that there might be some people who've not don't know much about you so what i'm gonna do is actually take them on a journey so instead of introducing you as to what you've been doing recently and all this sort of stuff we're going to start from the beginning and then we i want me and you to take the listener on a journey of of you of your life so essentially talk to me about growing up in Plymouth. in the muff down in Plymouth. just just Um, quickly before you do go on i was born in freedom fields hospital so essentially i am sort of a janna i know we had this conversation didn't we 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 did have this conversation, yeah, yeah, but there's still a lot of people that think I was born in Luton, which I wasn't. No, I was born in Freedom Fields as well, mate. Same I know, hospital. and I think they once once a couple of legends were, were spooned <laughs> out of there, they, they, they just shut it down because it's it's no it no longer exists, does it? No, it's a fire station now. Mm. <laughs> you set the but place yeah, mate, on fire. That's what happened. I'm still here, still down in Plymouth, 36 years later. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just love the place. Um, I've had plenty of chance to move away, um, but always just decided to stay down here. So what was it What was it like growing up? Oh, I was good, mate. You know, I, I didn't have, I haven't got one of these stories where I had a terrible upbringing. You know, I had everything I could have possibly asked for when I was growing mm. up. I grew up, it's quite funny, I grew up right next to, um, in a place called Pennycombe Quick, right by the city centre. Yeah. And uh, all, all the all the lads and the girls that I grew up with and lived around my area, they were all about two or three years older than I was. Um, mm. So when I went to school, I was the young guy, the sprog. Um, so I think that helped me 
when I was growing up to yeah. grow up a little bit quicker than I perhaps should have for my age because I was always yeah. around those guys that were, you know, when they were 16 and I was 13, they were allowed to go out and do certain things. When they were 18, going to nightclubs, you know, you'd be able to sneak along with them and, uh, and mm. join those crowds. So, you know, I had night, everything night, I wanted. Night, night, just, just nightclubs such as uh, Jester's. Um, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> That's still going strong as well. They haven't managed to knock that down yet. Have they? So basically, just a quick back, a little bit of background. I'll interject quickly. Plymouth, if you've not been, there is is a road called Union Street, and it used to be absolutely toppers, rammed, mm-hmm. full up with nightclubs, pubs, and it was the social hub of Plymouth. Um, it's probably got a really bad reputation. Jesters is one of the nightclubs, and uh, I mean, I've frequented it a lot in the past, and I know without even talking to Mark about it that he has, especially if he grew up there. So anyway. That's my ex- explanation. Thanks you, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, just just a, a young lad, mate, who grew up, you know, was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, running around, you know, grazing my knee, falling off the walls, getting into mischief and trouble, getting brought on by the police for being cheeky and, and that kind of stuff. A lot of energy, um, mm. you know, before the older, way before smartphones and all these devices came out, when you're actually out in the street, and you didn't go home until the streetlights came on, you know? Yeah. So I had, a, I, had a, I had a great, great childhood, mate. Um, can't really complain. So, um, I mean, that does sound not dissimilar to mine. You know, I, you know, it's quite, it's nostalgic, isn't it, when we talk about, like us old folk talk about, we used to play out in the streets, you know, grazing every bit of the body, not going home until the dark hours. Your mum not really mm-hmm. worried too much about you or she'd be shouting you in for your dinner. Seems like it's a thing of the past to a certain degree, but that's what it is. Mate, when did you, at what stage did you start to become interested in the military? I'll tell you what it was. I was about 15 and a half. Now, just go back to what we're saying about all my friends were older than me. A lot of them had left school when I got mm. to when I was approaching my GCSEs. And a couple of them were already in the army. Um, some based over in Germany in tank regiments. Um, some they, they were based all over the world, Canada, uh, the UK. Yeah. And uh, I got to about fifteen and a half uh, with my GCSEs on the horizon. And I was just walking through school one day, and I thought to myself, "When these exams are over, I'm either going to have to go on to further education, or I need to find a job." Well, I'm not a job. I knew I wanted a career, not a job. Mm. And so I went home and just started giving it some serious thought. I thought, well, you know, what, what do I want? Do I want to do education or do I want to go out into the big bad world? Now, eventually, uh, I decided that I wanted to go out into the big bad world while I was young, start a career from the bottom, try and work my way up and make something of my life. And so I started thinking about what it was that I wanted to do. Now, yeah. Plymouth, as you know, mate, is, is a big military city. There's a huge naval presence, Royal Marines presence, uh, army presence in the city. And because I had those friends who were already out there in the military, it kind of mm. swayed my decision. I thought, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to finish these exams, do as well as I can, and I'm going to join the army. Because bizarrely, <clears throat> even though I lived in Plymouth and was brought up here, I didn't know who the Royal Marines were. I'd never come into contact with them. Wow. So... I went down to the career center one day and I sat through the, the briefing video with the army recruiter, went back home, 
took the paperwork back, took my parents to sign it because I was, was too young to do it at that point. And then my dad said to me, do you know you've got an uncle who was a captain in the Royal Marines? And I'm like, no. So fortunately, he only lived about 20 minutes up the A38 in a place called Buck Fastly. So we arranged <laughs> to go up and see him. And uh, I sat down with him. Oh, as soon as I walked in his, in his house, he lived in like a, a farmhouse barn conversion type thing. He had horses and everything. And I walked through the front door and, and he had this big citation with an officer's sword with his green beret hanging off the end of it. And yeah. he sat me down and he started talking to me about life in the Royal Marines. He had gone from Marine to Captain in 22 years. He told me a little bit about his career. He told me why the Royal Marines were going to be different to the Army. And so I went back to the recruiting center on yeah. Monday morning and I spoke to the Royal Marine recruiter who put in the old VHS cassette for me. And I just <laughs> sat there with my jaw open, like, what's going on? These guys are jumping out of planes. They're on speedboats. They've got these big packs on their back. They're in the jungle, the <laughs> desert, the Arctic, the woodland. And I was like, this is incredible. I want to do this. So that was yeah. pretty much it. From, from that point, my mind was made up. I went back and, and I started the process finished up school and then just waited for the phone call to get, to get started. That's it. That's, I mean, that's awesome. I like, I love the way that your old man just springs it on you at the last minute. Oh, by the way, you've got an uncle. He was in the call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go that and have changed, a chat with him. Yeah. That, that changed the game. Yeah. I remember, I know the video it was. Yeah. I mean, everything that you said about that video sounds awesome, except they're wearing heavy packs on their backs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, when, when, when you haven't done it, it looks great. And then when you start to do, you're like, oh my God, this is shit. hundred percent, mate. hundred <laughs> percent. Anyway, mate, what you obviously, you know, you did Royal Marines training, which everyone knows it's hard. We speak about it all the time. It is actually an experience that afterwards you enjoy. But what was it that you enjoyed about being a soldier? Let's not focus on the training bit. I want to focus on what is it about, what is it that you loved about the Corps, actually? What is it that you loved about being a Royal Marine? First of all, I think it, it's that feeling of being part of a very small, unique and elite organisation. You know, I don't mm -hmm. need to, to speak to you about that, mate. And you know, the attrition rate in the Royal Marines and the dropout rate is massive. So, yeah. you know, to get through that training, to be part of that club, if you like, was phenomenal. I just used to carry myself around with such pride everywhere I went. You know, you go into a bank and you fill out an application and they say, what's your occupation? And you grow like three feet and you say Royal Marines, you know, because people know mm -hmm. who the Royal Marines are. And it just made me feel really, really proud. But yeah, I also really enjoyed the the personal growth aspect of it, you know, of, of doing these things, which aren't always comfortable, um, yeah. for having to push yourself to, to force yourself to grow, having these great people around you that encourage you to do that and help you to do that. And, you know, just the ability and the opportunities throughout your entire career to grow as an individual and become a better person. You know, I don't mm. think there's anywhere else in the, in the world that you can get a better opportunity to do that. No, so, it's, it, go on, mate. Sorry. I just that's what I loved about it, mate. Is being part of that club and just being able to develop yourself as an individual. Yeah, I 100% I agree. And actually, that's the first time we've had someone 
talk about it like that because we've gone off on different tangents before. But mate, you you join the core. It is an organisation. The core being the Royal Marines Commandos, and but you joined when it probably was just about to go into the most operationally. It it it, it was it you know, it's tempo of operations just skyrocketed through the roof. You know, Iraq had started and Afghanistan and the core really were thrown in at the deep end, not the deep end, but they were thrown in at it and, and sort of like took the ball by the horns, I suppose, when it came to being asked to do a job. Now, Afghanistan, it was high tempo operations, really kinetic. I don't think anyone could ever know that more than you are you able to talk to us about your injury and the story of that yeah for sure mate no problem um so yeah i mean what you're saying is is bang on i, I passed out in october 2001 uh, with 804 troop uh four weeks after we watched 9-11 on the news so we kind of mm. knew straight away that we were going to pass out and then we were going to get straight in at the thick end um, I got deployed, uh, got trained for Objicana early 2002, but never ended up going. Uh, did Telic One in Iraq in March 2003, yeah, and then I didn't deploy again until Afghanistan uh, in 2007. I was I actually just rejoined the Corps after a, a slight period outside as a failed civvy, and I came back in and I joined 40 Commando who were next on the rotation to go out to Afghan on Op Herrick 7 and deployed out there on September 7th, 2007. Yeah. After a couple of days in Bastion, you know, acclimatizing, getting our kit ready and, and doing all that good stuff, I yeah. flew out to a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson uh, in Helmand, which I'm sure you, you know of. It's got, it's got a tasty reputation, that place, for anyone that yeah. has never heard of it. It's basically a small, dusty building or group of buildings yeah, uh, it, in the it was, middle of a very arid countryside. Yeah, so it literally, um, after three or four days in Bastion, got flown out to, to Fob Rob, and then literally just went straight into the routine. You know, the, the advanced party were there. They'd set up Sanger's sentry uh, routine. There, there were... American Special Forces and Dutch Marines and everyone in, in that fob with us and we just set it straight into a routine uh, straight out on patrols conducting missions and doing all that kind of stuff no no kind of warm up period to it just straight into it and it, it was great mate you know we we had a very successful first half of the tour um, never sustained any injuries or any fatalities on any of the patrols that we went on any of the contacts that we got into <coughs> And we, we had a couple. Yeah. But then on on Christmas Eve, 2007, after two or three days of, of relative inactivity, we were tasked with going on another foot patrol, just literally just to get boots on the ground, you know, because mm. we, were, we were losing a little bit of momentum. Obviously, we were always being observed by the enemy, so we had to show them, even if we weren't doing anything, that we were still going out there we were still dominating the ground and, and taking the fight to them if they wanted it. Yeah. So we just got given this patrol to go on where the idea was we would leave the rear entrance of the camp in two sections. One yeah. would go north, one would go south. 
We were then told to patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp, so pushing no more than 300 meters out, then meet at the front entrance, so now the opposite side, yeah. close things down, secure the location, and finish up for the day. So easy as that, very, very basic, low-level stuff. Yeah. We had no intelligence that told us there was any cause for concern. It was just literally, lads, go out the back, walk around for a couple of hours, come in the front, show the enemy that you're out there still doing stuff, come back in, we'll take a few days off of Christmas. A little bit of show of force before the Christmas break. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, yeah, just to kind of pre-warn them, say, look, we're still here, we're still operating. Um, yeah. So if you do attack, we're not, we're not resting, doing nothing. So the time came. Um, we left the rear entrance of the camp. I was second in command of the guys that went north. Uh, the other guys went south. We went out and patrolled. We did all the, you know, usual things, the SOPs, you know, intelligence gathering, engaging with the locals, reporting anything yeah. suspicious back at the chain, all that kind of stuff. And then probably about four or five hours later, we found ourselves then at the opposite end of the camp, ready to finish up and come back in. Now, the section that I was in, we were on uh, a piece of high ground, uh, probably the highest piece of ground for about a two-mile radius called the North Fort, one of our target indicators. Mm -hmm. uh, slightly beneath us, we could see Ford operating base Robinson, and then further beneath that was the other section that we left with earlier in the day. So obviously being in a tactically advantageous position, we were tasked with giving them overwatch so they could safely get back into camp. They get behind the perimeter wall, return the favor. Everyone goes back in. Yeah. So we're up on the high feature. Uh, Corporal Sean Halesby, uh, the guy in charge, took his half of the section and started giving them fire positions. I took the other half of the section and about four meters in front of me was what I'll describe as a, a shallow bowl in the ground. Now, obviously... Yeah. You know, you know, and all the military guys listening will know that when you go farm, you'll take cover behind a building or a tree or something like that. But we didn't have those options where we were. So in my mind, I thought if we get in this little bowl, we get down on our stomachs, you know, we're up high anyway. It's going to be very difficult to see us, very, very difficult to attack us. This is going to give us the best form of protection. Yeah. So I jumped, I jumped in. The, the lads all started taking up their fire positions. I, I stood back. I observed for a little bit, did some checks. When they were happy, they gave me the thumbs up. Uh, did a few more last-minute checks just to make sure that we were we were tight and, and well defended. And then I started walking over towards the position that I selected for myself. Yeah. Now, when I got there, I went to get down to my stomach, and as my right knee hit the floor, that was the moment that I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Mm. I do remember it. If you want me to go into to detail about what happened next. Um, well, yeah, I mean, if you can, I mean, yeah, I mean, just to, um, just to quickly clarify a few points there for people listening, a contact is when you actually have a gunfight, a firefight with, uh, with the enemy and an IED, improvised explosive device, is obviously some form of explosive device that is laid out by the enemy, you know, sometime in the past. So, yeah, if you can then make pick up from there and just sort of like explain how you remember that as far as well, as long as you're happy to. Yeah, of course. So you've got to imagine, uh, well, you don't, but some of the listeners do, um, what the terrain is like in Afghanistan. So it's very sandy, it's very dusty. So when this device exploded, 
uh, instantly there was this huge dust cloud created. So temporarily, mm. I couldn't see anything and I was blinded. My gut instinct was that we had been attacked. I thought someone had fired a mortar bomb or an RPG on our position that yeah. had exploded nearby, created a dust cloud, and that's why I couldn't see. Uh, and all this chaos and confusion was going on. My adrenaline was spiked. And so I thought, okay, when the dust cloud settles, ID where the enemy is, start getting the rounds down, and hopefully we can tactically withdraw to a better position and then, you know, we'll make some calls on the ground there whether we're going to retreat or attack or do whatever. So I knew, even amidst all the chaos and, and confusion, that mm. um, behind me, beneath me, about 600 metres to the rear, was a small wooden uh, forestry block, you know, a small yeah. copse of trees. Everything else around yeah. that area was just flat mud fields. So yeah. with a million thoughts racing around my head, I thought if someone's going to attack us, that's where they're going to do it from because they got cover from view. So in my mind, I started saying to myself, turn around, turn around, turn around. I did the enemy, start shooting. Everyone else will start shooting. Then we can hopefully get out and no one's going to be hurt. After about four times of in my mind saying, turn around, turn around, turn around, I realized that although my brain was telling my body to do something, that my body wasn't responding and and i couldn't figure out why so i did the only thing i could in that situation and i waited you know i thought i'll wait till this dust cloud settles i'll be able to see what's happening i'll assess the situation make some quick yeah. calls down and figure out what we're doing now all this you know it happens so quickly and there's a million things going through your mind but you just make some very very quick decisions and you process it very very quickly yeah. so i waited and the dust cloud got to probably chest level and i started looking around panicking uh, hoping that none of my friends had been hurt but i couldn't see any of them and then the dust cloud eventually got probably six inches from the ground hit the ground and disappeared and as it did i looked down to where my legs should have been and they had both been completely ripped off from the knee down yeah now, I don't know anyone listening to this, if you've ever been in a, in a traumatic incident, like a car crash or maybe a, a fall from a height, you'll understand what I'm saying here. But it's, it's a very surreal experience. It's almost like everything outside of you slows down and feels like you're dreaming, like it's not real. But everything inside goes at a thousand mile an hour. And I just sat there in, in no pain, just a, a very, it was a very uncomfortable feeling, like an intense pins and needles feeling in my legs, but no yeah. pain. I just sat there looking in disbelief at what I was seeing. You know, my, my brain was really struggling to process it. And I think even more so because there was no pain. But for some reason, I very quickly snapped out of it because I remembered my team and started looking around again. And this time, as I looked over my right shoulder, I saw. Uh, Corporal Sean Helsby, the guy that was in charge. And me and Sean went through training together back in 2001. Yeah. So I knew him very well. And, you know, just looking at his face, you know, he was he was clearly in shock, you know, all the yeah. colour draining at his face. And I kind of looked at him and thought, in, in a kind of confused state, look, what's happening? What am I looking at? Why does he look like that? And I went to look back to my legs to try and make sense of, of what was actually happening. Mm. And then as I kind of swept the floor and got to the three o'clock position, I saw my arm 
kind of like lying there in the sand, still attached uh, by a, a bit of flesh on my bicep, but yeah. all, all the bone had been shattered. Um, that there was nothing salvageable at all uh, from my arm, all my legs. And that, that was kind of the moment when I realized what was actually happening and what I was going to have to do if, if I wanted to survive this. Now, I cannot praise those lads enough um, about what they did in that situation. You know, every single one of them, rather than get emotional and mm. want to run in and try and help me like we were trained not to do, they all just switched on to do their individual tasks that had been pre-assigned before the patrol. So immediately one of the lads is on the radio, another lad's on his belt buckle, prodding a safe route to me for when the medic gets there, another lad's setting up an all-round defence, making sure there's no um, risk of a small arms follow-up and everything. And they did it so professionally and quickly that by the time the medic got to me, he literally ran straight in, gave me some morphine, because it was starting to hurt by that point. Yeah. And then he started applying tourniquets to both my legs. Now he asked me to help apply a tourniquet to my arm. Um, I found out since it's one of the things that medics do to keep you responsive and, and stop you just yeah, yeah. giving up. So I, I tried to appease him by doing this tourniquet on my arm. And then he got me where he deemed me stable to pull me out of this minefield, pulled out this stretcher hooked his hands under my armpits and went to drag me onto the stretcher. Now, like I said just now, I haven't, I hadn't at that point really been any pain, but mm-hmm. when he, when he pulled me onto the stretcher, I just felt like a horrible stabbing feeling coming out of my right thigh. Almost like if you put a screwdriver under someone's kneecap and just ratcheted down on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I looked down to where this pain was coming from. And coming out of my thigh was like a, if you imagine a thin piece of rope covered in blood and claret and sand and dust, Mm. just kind of like snaking in the sand. So I followed it and it went into a boot. And I I don't know why, but I I picked the boot up and I looked inside it and my foot was still in there. So the medic had to put my foot on my stomach, put me on the stretcher, take me down off this high feature throw me in the back of a vehicle that was waiting and then evacuate me to get me to the HLS where a helicopter was going to come in to come and pick me up. Now I found out in the years since this, something I found out only just recently was on the way back when the Sergeant Major was driving, there were a couple of guys in a, in a truck that tried blocking the road to stop me getting back to the fog to get evacuated. They put a big uh, Afghan truck across the road they refused yeah. to move. And so they, you know, it's very skillful driving, got around that, started climbing up this incline to then go back into the camp. And as we got to a certain point, me and the medic fell out the back of the vehicle. And fortunately for me, the Sergeant Major who was evacuating me, he was driving the vehicle, turned around, put his arm out and grabbed for whatever he could grab to hold me in the vehicle and stop me falling out. And he ended up grabbing my femur, uh, the femur bone coming out of my right thigh. Yeah. Now he left, he left the medic because that, that other section we left with earlier in the day, they were at the bottom of this incline. So he was safe, the medic, but he made mm. the decision to leave him, get me to the HLS. And the last thing I can remember is the helicopter landing 
the sandstorm that's created from the propeller blades and then the heat that comes out of the exhaust kind of pounding down on me and mm. I passed out which is when I later found out that I was uh, declared clinically dead so so you were clinically you were, when you passed out obviously everyone look, was probably looking at the um, the state you were in and going well he's he, he's obviously going to die or he's, he's probably on his way out now yeah they um so there, there was another guy injured in the blast. He got shrapnel wounds in his back and in his arm. And when they put us on the, the back of the chinook, they felt me for a pulse and they said I didn't have one. They tried to put intravenous signs into me, but all my veins had collapsed because of the massive blood yeah. loss. And then when they put an oxygen mask on me, where it should have steamed up to show that I was breathing, it didn't. So they said, you know, this guy's done. We need to go work on this other guy because we don't want to dead bodies in the back of our helicopter. Mm. Now, luckily, one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go back and work on Stu, the other guy. And as he did that, he said that my eyes started to flutter, which to them meant that my heart was still beating. Yeah. So he alerted the other medics. They came over, got to work on me. And three days prior to this incident, um, whoever makes the decisions in the, the army medical world had cleared the use of a new technique uh, where if you couldn't get intravenous lines with somebody's veins, you took a drill and you drilled into their tibia and their fibia and you yeah. put intravenous lines in that way. Problem being, both of my legs had just been ripped off by an IED, so I didn't have a tib or a fib. So these medics uh, very bravely just made the decision to try and drill into my hip bone. Um, the first attempt failed. Uh, they told me they didn't pull the skin tight enough so they couldn't get the line to bite. But the second time they pulled the skin tight, put the line in, and they said within about three minutes I was awake and I was responsive. And I think my first comment was, I don't remember any of this, but I said no. that my ass my ass was hurting, which is apparently a side <laughs> effect of mass amounts of morphine. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they brought me back from the dead and got me back to Bastion. And then the surgeons did an initial operation just to tidy up all the mess, amputated both my legs above the knee, right arm above the elbow, and flew me back home. Mate, um, that is an unbelievably humbling, sobering, and don't take this the wrong way, amazing story, because I'll tell you for one reason why, and that's because of your, your ability to tell it in such an amazing way. Um, secondly, because... You know, I've spoken to a lot of people, I've been with people, and when you try and talk to them about, you know, the physical impact of war on themselves, some a lot of people cannot really remember what happens. You know, like you went into that phase, obviously, you know, when you get to the helicopter, that's it. It's all, you, or even actually before then, because you don't remember falling out or nearly falling out of the vehicle. So, but to be able to recite that and explain it like you did, that was, that was awesome, mate. 100% awesome. And, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that have played a great part in making sure a good person's still around. But um, yeah, mate, just to uh, move on a little bit, but still staying on the same sort of subject, you obviously came back to the UK. There was an awful lot for you to get done. How did you get your head around what happened? Do you know what it is, mate? I think, I think a lot of it is potluck. Because I think when mm. you wake up, you know, and, and you're in a hospital and you gradually get weaned off the, the pain relief and medication, you come to the real world and you understand what's happened. You're only going to go one or two ways. I think you're going to look at it 
matter of fact and say, okay, this has happened. There's nothing I can do about it. I've got to get on with it. Or you're going to say, why did this happen to me? This isn't fair. I hate the world and, and go mm-hmm. the other way. And I think I was just, I think it was a combination of two things. You know, I think the medical team in the hospital did an unbelievably good job of taking me off that medication in a way where over the course of a week, I could understand and accept what had happened in a manageable way rather than just get hit in one giant go. Like, this is what's happened, mate. You've got to deal with it. Yeah. And, and I, I was just lucky in the fact that I looked at it and got said, you know, there's nothing I can do about this. They're not going to grow back. I've just got to move on as quickly as I can and regain. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Be my independence to get my life back. And that was just the, the attitude that I had. And then when you couple that with the massive support that I had from the Royal Marines and from friends and family and medical staff, you know, it just all, all of that combined was, was the winning formula, which enabled me to not dwell on the negative side of my situation for too long. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that pretty much wraps up, you know, your mental health side, obviously you've probably, we all do, but no doubt you've, you've had um, times when you've probably felt pretty shit. I know, you know, we've, we've, we've had chats about that and it's, it's an obvious, it's an obvious sort of like byproduct of of what's happened. But um, can you, can you remember any times when it's got, you know, you've got to the point where you've had to consciously be like, right, Mark, you got off, you know, you got to get a grip here. Yeah, I was going to ask you if I could talk about this because I think it's quite important to be honest. Yeah. You can very easily make it sound like I woke up, thought, okay, let's do this, and then you know the rest is the happy story. But you know, we both know that's not the case. Um, mm. So about three and a half weeks into it, I get a knock on my hospital room door. Guy walks in, introduces himself to me as the country's leading professional in the field of amputations. So at the very beginning of 2008, this guy had been amputating people's limbs for over 30 years. And he came in my room and he told me pretty non-emotionally, you know, a matter of fact that I was never going to walk again because he'd never met anybody who had just one leg missing above the knee that had any success with prosthetics because they were too painful. It was too difficult and it took too much energy. So most people just gave up and spent their life in a wheelchair. You know, I'm 24 years old at this point and I'm three and a half weeks into my recovery trying to be positive. And then this expert tells me I'm never going to walk again and I might as well just give it up. So that was for me the first time when I really had to to look inside myself and try and figure things out. And then that was rough. 
you know, that, that was hard for me to deal with. Mm. And then maybe two weeks after that, the first time I was actually out, out of the hospital, I got in a wheelchair and uh, Becky, my wife and, and my family were all staying in a welfare flat across the road. So we went out, we went over to the welfare flat. It was like a tower block. And I got in through the communal door, no problems at all. Got in through the front entrance of the flat, fine. And then I went to get into the front room, but because I've only got one arm, the the wheels on the wheelchair on one side are wider because you have to use one hand to do everything. Yeah. So I, I couldn't fit my wheelchair through the front room. So when everyone is, you know, eating their, their food and watching telly and everything like that, I was sat out in the corridor, you know, eating mine in a wheelchair. I had to, to pee in a milk bottle because I couldn't fit in the toilet. You know, I just felt completely isolated and, and out on a limb, if you like. Yeah. And that night, we were allowed to stay in that flat. And we figured it out. My dad, I think, picked me up at the wheelchair. We put the wheelchair in the bedroom and then put me back in the wheelchair. So I'd managed to get through that doorway. And although in hospital, I had obviously been shaving and brushing my teeth and I'd seen my, my face from the neck up in a mirror, I'd never seen myself in a full-length mirror to this point. And there was a full-length mirror in the bedroom. Now, prior to being injured, I was six foot two and yeah. at, my, at my peak, about 16 stone. And I rode past this mirror, three and a half feet tall, probably about nine stone two at that point, you know, just looking like a skeleton with a bit of flesh on. And I just mm-hmm. looked at myself and, and I, honestly, I've got no shame in admitting this. I spent the entire night crying with, yeah. with Becky in bed saying, I, I can't do this. You know, look at me. I'm 24. I've gone from the peak of physical fitness in this career as an elite soldier to someone now who's going to spend the rest of their life in a wheelchair, getting cared for, fed, driven about, looking horrendous, you know, and I, and I don't want to do it. I, mean, I just spent the entire night crying with Becky comforting me. Mate, that's, that's powerful stuff. Really appreciate you um, talking about it. Um, and it, I think it is, it is something that's really important to talk about the mental health side of, you know, something as horrific as that. But mate, just quickly, can you summarize for the people that are listening what, what, what actually, what, it, what bits are missing in that? So as in like, what, what do we call it? Um, you know, what, what are your injuries? Physical or mental? Physical. Uh, both legs above the knee, amputated, and right arm above the elbow. Right, there we go. Triple amputee. Yeah. Um, all, all, all amputations above the, um, the joint that makes a difference, basically. Yeah, massively. Uh, um, mate, that's powerful up until then, but it becomes even more powerful, your story, because when, when did you start to, when did it start to change and when did your life start to change from being wheelchair bound? Because obviously we're going to, we're going to start talking very shortly about your training sport and everything else that goes with that. Yeah. I mean, those two times I just described, they are probably the only two times, the only two downtimes I really had. And I think after having a good clear out and and a cry about it all, that helped to put me on the path and just focus on the positive stuff. And so I started setting myself goals and targets to kind of move towards. Now, the first thing I did was I set a goal when I got to rehab after six weeks in hospital 
of walking at the Meadows Parade when the unit got back from Afghan, because they were still, when I got injured, they still had um, half a tour to do. Then they would have like 10 weeks leave after that, come back to the unit, mm -hmm. do the Meadows Parade. So I started setting myself goals to, to walk at that Meadows Parade to keep me focused on the positive and give me something to get out of bed for every morning and something to strive for. And that set uh, like a, a chain of events in motion, I guess, where it just it was just really powerful for me. And it helped me to keep my head right and to focus on the, the good and, and the challenge and the positive stuff in my life. And, you know, it's pretty much from, from the early days, that's, that's what I've done. And that's how I've been able to stay on top, I think, physically and mentally, just by setting goals and then doing whatever it takes to achieve them. Mm. so obviously you were told you weren't going to be able to ever walk again by an expert a man that was in that field for over 30 years but obviously that's I mean that didn't it, it wasn't true you know you 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 wanted to defy what the experts were telling you so let, let's move on to your legs mm -hmm. let's talk about you know the prosthetics and um what that journey was like and, and how obviously they've changed your life from where you were, you know, post the, post the incident. But, um, let's talk about the, the, the build up because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to, uh, the, com the competitive side of Mark Ormrod. Okay. Um, so I think that's going to, that's going to pick up now, I think then, because the first day I was issued my prosthetic legs, I was wheeled down to, uh, rehab and pushed in between a set of parallel bars and they, they talked me through how these legs were going to work and what it was I needed to do. So I got myself ready to, to fit them to my residual limbs and all the physios were like, stop, stop, stop. You've, you've got to go in this crane. And I'm like, what are you talking about? A crane? And so you've got to put these straps on. It's like a rock climbing harness and then we'll winch you up and then we'll drop you down into the legs slowly. And then you can walk up and down with this crane hanging from the ceiling. And I was like, I don't yeah. want a crane. Just let me, let me crack on. But, you know, health <laughs> and safety being what it is, they ended up putting me in this crane. But luckily, I guess I put on a bit of weight by this point because I burnt the motor out and it, didn't, it couldn't pick me up. It just burnt out, started smoking. <laughs> so, right. So I was like, well, we've got no choice now. Just let me have a go. So eventually, after about 45 minutes, I got stood upright. And I had to steady myself because there's a whole thing with blood pressure of being lying down for so long and not being vertical. Yeah. And I looked, I looked to the end of these parallel bars, about five meters. And I was like, right, let's just do this. Let's eat up this five meters, turn around, come back. And then we, we've got a foundation. So I walked up and I walked down and I swear to God, mate, it, I felt like I did after the 30 miler. I, I was just, <laughs> I was in pieces and I went back to my room and I fell asleep. I had a power nap in the afternoon and I woke up and I thought this is going to be a lot harder than I, than I thought it was going to be. I thought I could just get by on brute force and ignorance and that because I was yeah. young and fit, I'd be fine, but I was totally wrong. And, um, that's, that's where I think the, uh, the fire got lit for me. So just really, mm. you know, you've got to figure this out, but you've got to be smart as well as physically yeah. able. So I, I got online. And because I was the UK's first triple amputee, there was nobody here at home who I could call up and say, I'm struggling with this. How do I do this? Can you help me with that? Because anyone who had gone before me 
who was a triple amputee um, that I had met were not using prosthetics. There was no one in the military that could mentor me. So I found a guy in America who, when yeah. he was 15, got hit by a train. And what the stuff he was doing was unreal. Like at that point, I couldn't survive half a day in my prosthetics without needing a wheelchair. You know, I'm changing my shirt four times a day because of sweat. And this guy's yeah. out there walking around, driving cars, going swimming in the ocean, surfing, doing triathlons. So I used to watch his content on, on YouTube and his social media as a bit of motivation. Now, the short version of the story is, you know, I reached out to him and I thought, if this guy can achieve this and we've got very similar levels of injuries, then there's no reason that I can't achieve the same that he's achieved if I ask him how he did it mentally and physically. What mental and physical steps did you take to get to where you are now? Now, yeah. at that point, he had been a triple amputee for six years and I'd been one for about six weeks. So I yeah. thought I can distill six years of his successes and failures, his wins and his losses into a much shorter amount of time just by asking him what he did and what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Fortunately, you know, him and his team agreed to help me and, and I started making some quite significant progress. And then eventually in June, 2009, I flew out to meet him. I met Cameron and the team and they just took me on this three week intensive boot camp where they just, whipped my ass non-stop day in day out they wouldn't let me bring a wheelchair with me they wouldn't let me bring a carol with me they just made me fly wow. to the other side of the world to oklahoma and they said look come out here we'll train you but these are our conditions and i went out there and 9th of june 2009 was the last time i ever used a wheelchair because of of what these guys had helped me to do they showed me what was possible and i knew that with a bit of competitive spirit you know i could achieve the same as what he did and thanks to them you know i was able to Mate, that's again another chapter in this podcast of awesomeness and yeah just amazing but what i'm going to do now is move on to the invictus games you've done a few now you've competed in quite a few things uh -huh. um talk to me about the invictus games mate so one of the things that i've noticed about being disabled is that when you when you first become disabled if you're not born that way Everyone says to you, when are you doing the Paralympics, mate? What sport are you going to do? Right? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to do the Paralympics. I've got no interest in it. You know, none of the sports in the Paralympics appeal to me. I, I, and I'm not going to just do sport for the sake of it because I'm now disabled. I, I had different goals in the beginning. You know, leaving yeah. my wheelchair behind was my main goal. And a lot of other guys got into sport and, and it helped them, but I just had no interest. Now, every Christmas... You know, I sit down and I start mapping out my goals for the following year. And in 2006, uh, 2016, sorry, I realized that Christmas 2017 was going to be my 10-year anniversary. So I wanted to do something that I hadn't done before. And yeah. so I came to where I am now in my home office and I sat down and I started thinking about it. You know, what haven't I done? What can I mark this special occasion with? And eventually I came up with sport. You know, I'd never done sport before. I'd, I'd not done a single thing. I, I was still lifting weights and, you know, doing a little bit of running, a bit of hand cycling just to keep myself healthy, but I'd never done anything competitively. Now, the Invictus Games was two years old at this point, and I'd seen a lot of my friends go out there, come back with, you know, hordes full of medals, which is great, but I also mm. saw them 
massively like come out of their shells as individuals. They, they've gone from someone who maybe lacked confidence and was a bit unsure to this, this guy that just blossomed and was confident and, you know, got their own self back, you know, and I, and I kind of saw the power of sport. So I decided to have a, have a go at it. And I, I didn't really want to just, you know, dip my toe in the water and contact the local club and, and try something. I thought I'll just go for this Invictus Games thing, what everyone's doing and see how I get on. So I applied, uh, was fortunate enough to make the team, turned up there for the first day of training and very much like the first day I learned to walk, thought I could get by on brute force and ignorance. And after four minutes of going match chat on a concept two rower, realized that that wasn't the case. Um, and I was gonna have to knuckle down and, and train very, very hard if I wanted to be successful in it. And so that's what I did. You know, that, that, from that moment on, um, I think it was yeah, 2017, I just knuckled down and that was my focus for that first year. You know, getting up at 5am, going onto my handbike in the garage, knocking out the cardio, then doing the strength and conditioning in the evening, traveling around the country for sports-specific training uh, on the weekends. And just trying to, I only ever wanted to do it once, that was the thing. So I thought I'm yeah. going to go all out once, hopefully come back with a load of, of gold medals and then just knock it on the head and, and do something different. So that was, the, that was the approach I took. I just hammered myself constantly throughout all the training to, to do as good as I could. Um, think and you quite did good pretty well. Yeah, it, it didn't quite good a plan the first year. Um, mm. I came back with two silvers and two bronzes and was a little disappointed. And although I, I probably could have just said, you know what, I've, I've experienced it. I've done okay. I've got I've medaled, so I'll be happy with that. I, I just couldn't do it. I just thought to myself, it's never going to look right when you've got two silvers and two bronzes without any gold medals. It's just going to look <laughs> stupid. So I decided that the following year, you know, I was going to do it again. And if I was lucky enough to be selected, I was going to approach it differently this time and be smart yeah. um, and actually listen to what my coaches told me rather than just try and <laughs> hammer myself and just get as fit as I could. And yeah, I went back in 2018 and, and I managed it. I managed to come back with four golds that time, one, one silver and two bronzes. So, um, yeah, a, a successful chapter. Mate, that is awesome. I mean, obviously, you, 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 you became friends with Prince Harry in the process. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. He's a huge, you know, obviously it's his baby, but a huge supporter yeah. of the games, huge supporter of, you know, the lads and the, and the girls and just a genuinely... You're really nice guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like when, even when the cameras are off, there's no audio recording and you're in a, in a private setting. Just a genuinely good person. Mate, yeah. That's the impression I get. I like him from a distance. Um, you've done all sorts of stuff. You've done some crazy stuff. I tell you, I do want to tell people that Mark Ormrod does Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and takes it to another level obviously because yeah. he's a triple amputee there's a guy out there you train with sam sheriff don't you yes i do yeah. he's a bootneck pti another awesome bloke but um you get amongst that what what is it about the bjj that you love what it is mate before i was injured um from about the age of 12 i i competed competitively um as a, a full contact kickboxer muay thai yeah. And then I boxed in the core as a heavyweight. Yeah. And after I was injured, 
I had several people approach me from, uh, I think it was karate was one of them, and maybe like Aikido or Judo, the second one, and asked me if I wanted to train with them. And they told me they could get me a black belt in their discipline. Now, I knew from my experience in martial arts that that wasn't possible. And if it was, it was going to be based on sympathy and pity. Yeah. Um, and then one day I was in the mess at Stonehouse and I, I met Sam for the first time. And he said, do you want to come down and train Brazilian jiu-jitsu with me? I'm the, the chief unarmed combat instructor. I'm a powerful belt. You know, do you want to come down and give it a go? Now, I trained jiu-jitsu when I was younger, but I didn't know the difference between traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But yeah. because he was a bootneck, I thought, okay, I'll give it a go, um, show him that I'm not going to be able to do anything, and then we'll just knock it on the head. <laughs> and I went down there, and I understood then that it was ground fighting. I didn't have to stand up, I didn't have to kick, didn't have to punch, do any of that stuff that I couldn't do with just one arm. And we had a, what, we, what we call a row. And obviously, he didn't go full out on me, and he, he just was he, he was learning as I was learning. But yeah. when I finished that first session, I thought, I can actually progress in this martial arts based on hard work and discipline and effort not people feeling mm. sorry for me and just handing out different color belts. And yeah, yeah. that was it, mate. That, from then on, I was like, right, this is, this is my new thing. You know, I, I love this sport. You know, I love, the, I love the community of it as well. It's the closest thing I've yeah. found to life in the military, that camaraderie and that brotherhood with the jiu-jitsu community. And mm. uh, it's just great. It just, you know, on the mats, off the mats, the lifestyle. You know, I just love it. It's brilliant. I mean, just just so people are aware, I, I follow Mark on social media and that, and um, literally every now and again there'll be a photograph of him working his absolute nuts off on the mats, and I, I mean properly putting everything into it. And it's, mate, it's it's awesome. It's mega inspiring, and it's, it's you, brilliant. Man. I'm glad I'm glad you're loving it. You have to come down um, one day, mate. I'll come down. Yeah, do you know <laughs> what? I, 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 I did used to do it, not not at any competitive level. I used to sort of like tap into it because a friend of mine asked me to go and train with him because he was getting a one on one to one, and they needed some. They basically needed the guinea pig to come in and get tossed up into all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of shapes and sizes. But do you know what? It was awesome. It's probably the most addictive thing yeah. I've ever gotten into, but never continued on because. I'm always making excuses. So who knows, mate? Who knows? Do you know what as well, mate? What I think is really good about it, you know, and maybe people wouldn't uh, immediately think this, but in terms of mental health as well, mm. you know, I, I just found that the way, like, I mean, first of all, when someone's trying to choke you or, or make you tap, there's nothing else you can think about. All, all your problems, you're not paying the mortgage, just that, you know, they become irrelevant because all you're thinking about <laughs> yeah. is surviving and not getting choked out. But then when you get through that initial six-month frustration period of, you know, you don't know what you don't know and it just doesn't make any sense and you start to understand it, it then mm. becomes like a game of human chess. And then you see your own growth and progression and that's very positive on your mental health because you feel like you're moving forward, you're growing, you're making progress, yeah. you know, and, and I've, that's been a big um, thing for me, you know, a big part of it for me as well as yeah. the positive effects on mental health. I always, I always likened it you know, I wasn't too sure about it when I first got asked to go along because like, like you, I was actually into Muay Thai and I was, you know, I was training it, that, with that and then someone said about this other thing and I was like, oh, I don't fancy doing this rolling around lark and then sort mm -hmm. of went along and it, it's like a game of chess, isn't it? You sort of like, 
you do yeah. have to think a long way in advance about what you're going to be doing in a few other weeks. I, I, it is really addictive and I'm, you know, I, I didn't continue it because of work and what have you, but something that I keep wanting to make time for. We'll get Maybe, you down, mate. <laughs> I'm down. Sam, Sam will be able to twist me up. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> mate, um, you've done some pretty scary things actually since, since all of what we've spoken about. Um, you've done a lot of daredevil stuff. I'm intrigued to know what's the scariest or what are you scared of? If anything. Oh God. Um, getting old. <laughs> getting old <laughs> scary. <laughs> no, on, yeah, a, I mean, on a serious note, because I, because I use my legs full time and I don't use a wheelchair. I'm, I'm not stupid enough to not understand that as I get older, my body gets weaker there's going to come mm. that point where I'm going to have to be sensible and say, listen, you need to use a wheelchair um, yeah. and your, your mobility is going to be reduced. So that, that is a, a concern of mine, you know, mm. but in terms of all those other, you know, the bungee jumping, wing walking, skydiving, all that kind of stuff. I don't, then, well, you know, mate, I mean, I don't find them scary. They're thrilling. The, the, yeah. the only one time that I found one of them scary was the bungee jump. Obviously, I don't get tied on by my ankles. I get tied on with a chest harness. But yeah. as as I reached the the peak of the the rope stretching, my left leg nearly fell off, and I was above a, a lake. Right, and and these things right, these things are twenty grand a piece, and I was above a lake, so I had to reach up and grab the socket and stop my leg hurtling a hundred feet towards the lake beneath me and lose it and end up having to get a scuba team in there to recover a hundred, <laughs> you know, my prosthetics. <laughs> oh. <Man. laughs> I didn't know that about that story. That's fucking yeah. brilliant. Um, we're going to sort of like move on a little bit. Um, you haven't done this all on your own. And I know, I know what you're going to say, but, if you've got to thank for being with you along that journey that we've just spoken about for the last 40 odd minutes. Yeah, you do know what I'm going to say, mate, but it's, it's got to be my wife, Becky. Yeah. You know, when, when we met, she was 21. You know, she was in mm. Plymouth. She, she just finished a four year degree. She just earned a degree. You know, we'd been together for 12 months and then this happened. So, and her parents live up in Surrey, um, up in Adelstone. So, there was nothing really keeping her in Plymouth. You know, she had her whole life ahead of her, but for whatever reason, she decided that she was going to stick around and that together we we could overcome it and and build a life together. And that's what we did. You know, we just celebrated this, this weekend on the the 2nd of May, our 11 year wedding anniversary, been together for 14 years, um, two kids together, you know, just, just rocking life daily. You know, she's there all, all the time throughout everything, mate. Mate, that's, I, I, I knew what you were going to say. I just wanted you to say it because it was an important <laughs> part of your... No, it's an, I think it's an important part of your story that you, you two yeah. are able to do that. It's, you know, it's good. Now, again, people will be surprised after hearing all that that Mark does motivational speaking. So I'd just like to throw that out there because, I mean, you've heard it there, but there's more to it. Um. What do you talk about when you do do your motivational t- talks? Do you know what? 95% of the time, I, I tell that story, what I've just told, but in a, in a lot more detail over a, yeah. a prolonged period of time with a, a very gory 
PowerPoint presentation. I've got photographs of myself getting operated on in Afghanistan on, on the table in the tent. So I throw all that in. But, you know, each time it's a little bit different, but the majority of it is about perspective, you know, because mm. a lot of times you go into these corporates and maybe the, a business is facing a financial challenge and, you know, everyone's getting stressed out and they lose yeah. perspective. And then this guy walks in with three limbs missing, shows you how he got blown up and, and how he recovered and, and who helped him recover. And all of a sudden, the financial issues that they're facing seem very manageable and, and easy to overcome, you know? Yeah. And then there's obviously there's mindset. You know, I, I delve into a bit of, particularly in the Q&A section, yeah. my mindset going through rehab and, and now and, you know, how it was shaped and how I continue to try and improve it. You know, all, all sorts of different things, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if anyone wants to listen to him, get get him get him down to your business or even free webinars as the crisis that we're in the middle of would dictate yeah uh mate moving on because it is the talisker wild tales podcast we need to definitely talk about the outdoors and how important is that to you both physically and mentally all right do you know what as, as i've got as i've gotten older i think it's become more important you know one of the yeah one of the things i really love about about becky my wife is that she loves the outdoors as well and you know yesterday's a perfect example i mm. i can't always go on the walks through the forest or the you know through the muddy puddles and running through the lakes and everything with the kids because of you know x y and z reasons but that she does that yeah. because we both understand how important it is to be out in nature and to leave the devices behind to switch off the tv and, and to get out there and just reconnect and, and purge just purge your brain but you know since this lockdown i've i've took my hand bike off of the turbo trainer and we've all been out exploring the whole of plymouth and, and i love it because normally i'm either driving past somewhere and you don't get time to take anything in or if mm. i'm walking you know 95 percent of my concentration is on staying upright so I, I don't take in a lot of stuff around me but on my bike i'm down low i'm stable it's not that much of a hangout. I can, I enjoy all the scenery around me. It's very, I find it very relaxing and, and therapeutic. Yeah. I, I a hundred percent agree. And that's, it is what this is all about as well. This chat, you know, it's about the outdoors and what it means to people. Uh, I've got, a, I've got a spin. I've got to tell a story quickly here before we do move on to the, to the final bit. It's a, I, was it, I think it was the first time I met Mark. And it was at an, a charity event all to do with raising money for the Royal Marines uh, charity uh, or whatever it was called back in the day because it's been a few different things. Yeah. And myself and Jamie Sanderson, who's obviously the other guy from Rock to Recovery, the, the, actually the, the main guy, I should say, from Rock to Recovery, we had arranged to meet you. Now, you knew Jamie, but I'd never met you before outside the Tower Hotel. I think, am I right in this, thinking this is the first time? I think it was. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, and this this uh, obviously Mark's turned up in his car and he's parked it right outside the front of the Tower Hotel in London, in in the disabled spot. Obviously, there's one disabled spot outside, and as he's getting out, the guy that you know, obviously one of the one of the security guys from the hotel comes storming over because he's just seen this young young guy, this young man, get out of a car and go to walk away from it, and you can hear him saying, "Oi, oi." Oh, you can't park there. It's a disabled. <laughs> it's a disabled space. And then he's obviously walked around the corner, and and you're stood in front of him. Obviously, 
two prosthetic legs and and your your arm attached as well and his face was a picture i, I mean i wish i i wish i could have taken a picture and you just looked at him as if to say what's the problem mate mate I, <laughs> and he just I get uh, it. he scurried away I, I get it all the time mate still now even you know and i don't know what car I was driving that day probably the if i was in london it would have been the, the family car but yeah. like you know, right now I, I enjoy cars and, and all that kind of stuff. I've got a, a Nissan GTR on the driver right now. So you nice. imagine when that pulls up in a disabled spot with a relatively youngish looking person. In it. <laughs> it's, it's non-stop abuse, man. I've had notes left on my windscreen. I've had people taking pictures of me sat in my car, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> it's crazy. What? <laughs> what, and they still can't see from this photographic evidence? Well, normally, you know, you pull up and all they can see is your chest up, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, it takes me a little bit of time to get out of the car. So it's not like I can just hop straight out. Um, and, but usually by the time I get out, they're gone. But yeah, they'll, they'll take pictures. <laughs> it's not like you can hop straight out and return fire. <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish. <laughs> right, mate, we're going to start wrapping up now. I'm going to ask all you right. one, last, one last question for me, for, the, for everyone listening. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to go on to... One question sent in by people because I put it out there saying, you know, what do you, what would you like to know from, you know, what question would you like to ask Mark? And then the person, whoever I read out, that person gets a bottle of Talisker. But mate, before before we ask that question, what advice have you got for people for people during this crisis on how to stay positive? Um. I think again, I think we touched on it in the beginning is, is, is look for the positives in it. Mm. Now I, I find that hard to say because, you know, there's been a lot of people that have unfortunately died uh, during this crisis. And so people may be related or who know those people would find it very difficult to find something positive in it. But, you know, for the rest of us, you know, it's, we're locked in a house, right? Temporarily, we've got Wi-Fi, heat, electricity. Mm. You know, all the all the creature comforts you ever want in life. I've never spent so much time with my family ever, so that's a, a massive positive for me. You know, I'm I'm like you, Foxy. I'm I'm busy. You know, most of the time bouncing all over the place. It's given me an opportunity now to catch up and catch my breath and to get on top of things. So I'm just trying to look for the positives in the situation and to capitalise on them. But also, again, what we said earlier was was habits and routines. You know, don't just roll out of bed at any time of the day with no plan about what you're going to do for that day yeah. and, you know, put exercise as a, an afterthought. Have a structured daily routine that you stick to to give you that that consistency, mm. you know, and that that's the key. I can't explain how powerful it is to have that, that consistent routine. Yeah, definitely. And you, you've obviously had a routine from, you know, long before the injury but again routine probably was a big part of recovering as well wasn't it massively massively right mate i'm going to move on to the the question now we've we've covered an awful lot there and it's been quite in a in a very good way quite deep and we've explored an awful lot and we um have covered a lot and there's been some stuff that i'll take away from this for sure definitely most of it because, I mean, that is an inspiring chat and I've really, really, really enjoyed it, mate. There's stuff there that I didn't know and so I'm really pleased that we've had this conversation. But, mate, I'm going to go a little bit deeper now. And the the guy that asked, the person that asked this is Dan McKenna, 1991, on um, 
on Insta. And the question is, Mark, you've won 11 medals at the Invictus Games, but what sauce do you prefer on your bacon butties, brown or red? Uh, obviously red. <laughs> Who puts brown sauce on their bacon butties? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. But, I mean, that was a question that I, dis- I figured it. Dis- it I figured <laughs> he deserved a little bit of airtime there because I wanted a, I wanted it to go a bit light. I wanted it light. Wanted, yeah, fair one. Thanks for the question. Yeah, I wanted it light and red, not light and brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, um, that was awesome. You're a legend and I really appreciate you coming on and uh, mate, let's catch up again soon. Yeah, when this is all over, mate, I'll get myself back up to London yeah. and uh, we'll do that. And then we'll get you down on the mats, like we said. Yeah, exactly. Do a bit of training. Yeah, twist me up. <laughs> Tie me in knots. <laughs> oh, mate. Brilliant. Mate. Thank you, mate. I appreciate you inviting me on, mate. It's been great. Thanks very much to Mark. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. Thanks again to Talisker for supporting this podcast and thanks for listening. Cheers. See you in a bit. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.